Hello and welcome back to Absurdity. I am joined by my curly-haired beauty of a co-host, Henry Johnson. I don't think of these prior to us hitting record, just I, so I we're clear. I was going to say, you were really resting was, what to say it had, here. It has nothing. That's why I'm actually admitting that I come up with it on the spot. It's not It's not that I don't have anything to compliment about you. It's just that I, I forget that that's how I'm introducing you until after we've already hit record. And then I... I like when I say welcome, like hello and welcome back to absurdity. That's when I remember that I'm supposed to compliment you and I panic in that moment. Um, so that's what's happened the last few times. But I'm going to do better about this. I promise. You, you, you can tell there's some sort of awkward power dynamic where he's so scared of me. He has to compliment me every time. It's just you're so intimidating, you know. Uh, uh, I, I get that a lot, I guess. Yeah, it's it. But you're it's OK. I love you. And I appreciate you. And so do our listeners. So it's okay. Aww. You know, uh, I, I am excited. Glad you choose to speak on their behalf. Thank you all the time. Uh, they're too intimidated to speak to you, obviously. So it's me <laughs> that, that, course, that does it. But I am excited about today's episode because two white guys are once again, going to talk way outside of their lane. Well, that's not intimidating. Yeah, no, not at all. And, uh, it's going to go it's either really content matter, Ryan. It's it's gonna go really well or it's not going to go really well. But well, I think way there to be is critical of us. I uh, thank you. I try. Um I'm just it's That's just my a race. Anyway. Yeah, it's a it's a race to get uh to see how how quickly we can get to this topic. But and before if you we put actually critical race and theory together, what do we get? We get critical race theory. Hey, and that, friends, <laughs> is what we're talking about today. Um, but before we do that, really quick, I do want to make uh, this announcement to everyone, which is I have been doing podcast coaching for years for people, and I've done seminars and workshops, but I am officially doing it as a as a real coaching business. So I have started up Pod Mentoring, which you can find at podmentoring.com, and it is how I... Uh, am now formalizing all of the coaching and mentoring that I do for podcasting. So really excited to be doing it. I'll do it for both individuals and businesses who want to grow their audience, who want to increase their influence and and really want to figure out how to do something in a really, really high impact way. So I am really excited to officially be doing that now and taking on clients. And so if you want to go check that out, there is a free resource. If you're someone who's considering starting a podcast, uh, there is a free resource you can download there to help you with your planning. And I'm just really, really pumped to see how this takes off and and how I can continue to grow it and, and keep moving forward. So yeah, I just wanted to make that announcement. Um, and yeah, you are welcome to, to reach out to me if you have any interest or if you know of anyone who's interested, just send them to podmentoring.com, which is also in the description of this show. So yeah, that was it. That was the quick announcement. Let's, let's dive in. Father on pod mentoring. So here's the thing. I actually thought and very, very like strongly considered Podfather and wanted to do it. However, it turns out that there is a company in uh, in the UK that is already has already taken Podfather.com. And it's a shipping company. Mainly, it looks like they, they, it's like a shipping efficiency company, essentially. Of and course, I'm like, there's pods of whales and other things. And correct. And, and well, and they, they mainly deal, it looks like with like construction style or like shipments, like actual, like, like cargo on a ship. Uh, they, they're dealing with, with that kind of like those larger containers and, and larger scale. So it just wasn't the right items. packaging for your brand. 
Correct. It wasn't the right packaging. You are absolutely correct. Um, it wasn't the right pod for me. So I had to go with something different. Something and uh, pod- about that. podcast mentoring is a much more expensive, uh, you know, URL to buy. So I landed on pod mentoring. That's where we are. So it's by cheapness, ladies and gentlemen, that you will get that. But don't cheapness worry. or he is what the, the service is cheap. The content is worth every penny. Yes, that's right. Um, but the service actually isn't cheap. The service is 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 a is a real is a real investment. In other words, I'm looking for people who are really serious about this and really wanting to to launch a high quality podcast. And if you just want to pull out your phone, record and post it to Anchor, go for it. Not what I'm trying to do here. So just as a just as a, a note there. Uh, but with that, so I'm going to switch trying, my camera because. My camera is ridiculous and keeps cutting out on me. So I have switched my camera and we're just going to we're just going to move on with our lives. For those who are listening on audio, I have switched my camera for for YouTube. So if you if you don't know we are on YouTube. All right, enough with my ADHD taking over. Henry, let's dive into this topic of critical race theory. And we this has been something I'm actually surprised when I realized that we haven't really talked about it on this show ever specifically. We've it's been mentioned I think in passing, but I don't think we've ever actually dived into the topic and I think right now is a good time to be talking about it given even the recent events that we've talked about on this show and just kind of the state of things as they are. So, Henry from from if you want to start us off, I'd love to just get an uh, an introduction. As we as we always do, we try to start with kind of a working definition of what we understand critical race theory to be, uh, or or whatever our you know a working introduction or uh, definition of whatever our show topic is. So, yeah, Henry, if you want to take us and and start with that, I think that that'd be a great place to start. Oh mercy! How to come up with a working definition? Well, the first thing we should probably mention is that neither Ryan or I are academics. So we're, we're talking in something, critical race theory is just a general term for an academic field of study, trying to address race relations primarily in the West, obviously centered on the United States, but primarily in the West. And the idea that constitutions, law, structures of society are not in and of themselves neutral. Mm-hmm. That's, that's as best as I understand it. So in, in other words, that race is playing a major factor structurally and institutionally. And that it's these institutional factors that have more bearing on outcomes than the individual factor. I know yes. That sounds really wonky. Uh, but so if I had to come up with a definition, I'd say critical race theory is an academic field of study. It's pretty broad, a broad field of academic study that argues that systems are not neutral and have greater impact on the outcome of individuals than do individuals on the issue of race. Yeah. Um, that's, a that's a, I think a pretty solid way of understanding this. It's, it's a, it's problematic because one of the things that I, that I discovered as I was researching this and, you know, trying to create and form a, a more educated opinion on the topic, if you're just a layman, like searching and trying to understand critical race theory, like good luck. Because yeah, I don't think Wikipedia is going to solve it. For Wikipedia is not going to solve it. YouTube definitely isn't going to solve it. 
uh, PragerU is a nightmare. Regardless of what your thoughts are on critical race theory, like PragerU is not the place to go educate yourself about pretty much anything. Anything. Yeah. The <laughs> the they don't give the definition or any sort of explanation of what something is. They give their interpretation of it as it as it victimizes right wing conservatives. Like that's that's so essentially what sixteen ninety nine versus seventeen seventy six educational pushes right now. Correct. So the. But it's it's really it's really sad because critical race theory is it's it's been gaining traction, but it's also something that is pretty important to understand. I think there is, I think there is something to it, and it has formed for very specific reasons. But the same way that socialism has been kind of demonized, without people actually understanding what socialism is, right? The People are like, increase taxes, it's socialism. Uh, and the just that kind of mess has has led us to a position where now we're fighting over the definition of what what it is and rather than actually doing anything about what it solves or what it what it seeks to solve. And like like anything, it's not perfect. But it's really sad because if you think of like the theory of gravity, yeah, there are people that misunderstand what the theory of gravity is, but there's pretty much consensus on it. Like, it's pretty easy to figure out and discover, like, what the theory of gravity actually is. And with critical race theory, it's a little bit more digging and there's a lot more nuance that it gets involved. And if you listen to one person, it's going to be completely different than if you listen to another. And I... I'm going to say it's a broad field. And that was the thing that I yeah. think we have to understand is even though we're giving a working definition, it's easier to define the the field than it is any particular thing you might be reading in it because it's it's really a big umbrella for a whole lot of different takes on the same topic. Yeah. And that's why I think that should color our conversation because I just want to give kind of not really a warning or or a flag or anything, but I just want to bring this to, to listeners' attention because I'm not saying that what we're going to say is wrong or inaccurate or incorrect. I don't I don't really know. We haven't had the conversation yet. But it's important to keep in mind that you really, when you dig into matters regarding racism, you've really got to figure out what filters you need to use because it is it gets messy really quick and you need to be able to determine. I, I think the I think the number one question to ask yourself as you're diving into any of this kind of content, whether it's from us or from YouTube or Google, Wikipedia, whatever, is just what does this person have to gain if I believe them? Or what does this YouTube channel or what does this author or what does this group have to gain by me believing them? And then decide, like everyone always gets something to gain. If you listen to us, what we gain is listeners, listener data. We get we gain support. There's there's meaningful and we gain your time, which is a gift and and something that we don't take lightly. Whereas if you if there's another YouTube channel that is, you know, actively or a podcast that's actively working against Black Lives Matter or whatever, then the question is, okay, so if I believe them, I'm helping them in their fight against this thing, right? So then you have to decide if that's something that you really want to join with. If it is, okay. But if it's not, then then there's reason for the filter to be there. So just something to to be said there. Um, but I agree, Henry, with your with your thing. It is it is something that's academic. And what's interesting to me in my research was it was actually started. So it started what the mid seventies, I believe. Is that does that line up mid with the late seventies? Remo- it sounds about right. And 
what I find interesting is it's, it happened as a response to progressive and liberal ways of dealing with racism. It was, it was basically, in my understanding, it, it came immediately out of the idea that the affirmative action direction of society was not going to cut it. Yes. And it also increasingly so became a, a protest against colorblindness as well, where the idea of what used to be Right now, it's mostly right-wing and conservatives that, that will say that, right? I don't see color. But for a number of years, that saying, was you would find it coming out of the mouths of progressives and liberals far more often. Of people thinking like, yeah, I don't, I don't see color, and I love people for, for who they are underneath, and, and I, you know, I treat everyone equally. And critical race theory was one of the weapons formed against that kind of mindset. So the irony being that it's right now criticized as this ultra left-wing thing, but it actually start, got a lot of its start because it was it was presenting itself as an alternative or as a rebuke to actual real-world left-world, uh, you know, left-wing positions. Yeah. So I just find that really, really interesting. And so as you were diving into this, I guess my first question then, Henry, is, is what... What was your understanding of it or, or what did you think about it prior to or how did you interact with critical race theory prior to actually researching it as we geared up for this conversation? Knowingly, I didn't. <laughs> Why is that? No, I, I, I mean, what, what I mean by that is you go, what was my interaction with it? And I say knowingly, not like I was actively trying to avoid it. I just mean if I did interact with it, I didn't know that's what it was that I was interacting with. Mm. I, I had heard the term, but I never really looked into it, to be honest. So, you know, you hear stuff like critical race theory or or, or whatever, and it's just another phrase. And I was never 100% sure. J just, its, just its title, just saying from a, a lay kind of ignorant perspective, when you hear critical race theory, you think, well, critical isn't good. And race usually doesn't go anywhere well in this country. So if it's critical race theory, it's probably white supremacy or something stupid. So mm. I'm not really interested in pursuing it uh, as a very ignorant. You so know, you thought it was the opposite of what it actually is. Correct. Honestly, when I first heard the term, I was like, that doesn't sound good. I probably want nothing to do with it. And it wasn't until you brought it up and you're like, hey, we should probably do a podcast on this as we're continuing this kind of theme of, of racial tension and relationships and, and figuring out what to do about it. And I said, okay, well, let me look into it. And I didn't know if we were looking into it because it was going to be another thing like, oh my goodness, this is horrible and where is society gone? Or I, I didn't know. It wasn't until I started looking, I was like, oh, this is a field of academic study. That Oh yeah, academics do like terms like critical this and and they mean critical, not in the negative, but in dissecting. And I went, oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> but but to be honest, I, had, I, I didn't really understand what it was prior to this week when I started looking into this. So if I was interacting with themes that it pursues, and there's probably a likelihood that in certain ways I was, I didn't realize that fell under that subheading, that that kind of umbrella. I, I would have viewed it as something else. So that's kind yeah. of my answer to how did I relate to it. No, I, I understand that. And I never really dove into it intentionally, though I did think it was something important. I I just, it. this is one of those, I guess it's a it's a sign of privilege in general that like, it's just not been a 
big enough thing in my life that was important for my day to day that I needed to jump yeah, into it. We don't have it. to live it exactly. To figure it out, and that's that's something we we had talked about. Tony and I had talked about on on the privilege of protest, and the idea being this is around the time of Hong Kong, where it's like. Hong Kong citizens are protesting and they don't, they, and this is like, so this is a year ago, Black Lives Matter, right after the George Floyd shooting, same thing. There are people that are out in these protests because they feel like they have to be. They feel like. Yeah, because they, they don't have a choice because of what the the Chinese mainland has done. Exactly. And, and against basic law and all that kind of stuff. Exactly. And when, when for, for people of color and, and for black people specifically, when everything that happens to them happen, it, or happens to the community feels like it happens to them, then it very much feels like those protests are fighting for their own lives. Uh, and even if it's just a, even if all they're doing is marching or sitting or whatever it might be. The. In other words, for us, it's academic, which is part of the Correct. Problem. And for us, it's a privilege. Like, if I could decide to go to the protest, and if I do or don't, or, oh, it's raining today, I don't really want to, you know? Whereas other people are out there in the rain because they feel like they can do no different. And that's the privilege. Uh, that's the idea of privilege. It's not that it's some terrible or horrible thing, but rather just like, yeah, we've we've been lucky enough that this hasn't have had to be a problem for us. This hasn't had to be a, a, a major priority, but people we care about. Which is part of critical race theory. Exactly. Which would argue that the system works for us. Yes. <laughs> and this is this is what's so annoying because most proponents again or most advocates against critical race theory are bootstrappers. Right. They're the people who say, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Your work is defined by either or like you are defined by your values, your beliefs, your character or your behaviors. That's what they'd say. And so they say, I haven't had this. And it's all anecdotal. Most of the responses and rebuttals I see to critical race theory are usually anecdotal. I haven't experienced it this way. So it must not be true for others or it must be overblown for others. Right. Or. The typical response I hear in a conversation about privilege is, well, I had to work my way up or I had to do this. You know, I, I grew up poor and I never had white privilege and I've never been in charge of an organization or whatever. And I, I had to Except white privilege doesn't mean money. Correct. And that's the, the it's an, a misunderstanding of what privilege is, right? I, I, my dad died 10 years ago. I had to navigate college on my own. I had to take out loans. I had to, I'm in debt from those loans still. Um, I've had to deal with medical issue after medical issue. I've been strapped on bills because of it for years. And I don't sit here and say, and I've had to really work and I've, I've had to figure out how to navigate my life on my own with no help from virtually anyone on a lot of, on a lot of topics. And I don't sit here and say that I'm not privileged because of that, because there are other things that I didn't have to worry about. And it's because of the way that some systems operate. And I think that that's, that's the that's the key to understanding this is is to some degree we have to depersonalize it because i think racism exists in much more insidious ways than we give it credit for and and there's there's this narrative out there that and i i actually encountered this with the amy cooper story that happened the same day as george floyd i i recorded a video about amy cooper and a lot of the comments were like, well, he, she didn't explicitly say, basically they amounted to, she didn't explicitly say she's racist. So how can you say that this was racist? Uh, the Amy Cooper one, that's the one in the New York. Correct. Central Park. Right, she approached she, the guy Central with Park, the. Park where she called because of the dog and. You know. Yep. Yep. Okay. Just making sure I'm remembering that correctly. Yeah. And, and 
it's just like these are a lot of those people are the same people that would tell you that Obama was, you know, not a U.S. citizen, even though after they saw his birth certificate. He was born in Kenya, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And that that that's like that's what's so funny to me is they're like, well, they, we can't we can't know for sure, so we can't say it. But then they're like, but also we know for sure, even though he never said it. And it's can't you can't? I mean, I guess you can have it both ways. It's just that it's cognitive dissonance at best. The especially when one of those takes requires far less evidence to believe than than the other. But ignorance never requires evidence. That's actually true. That's most conspiracy theories, I feel like. So this is for critical race theory. I think this is a this is an understanding of depersonalizing it. So we're not dealing anecdotally with, you know, my story proves this to be true versus my story proves it to not be true, but rather to depersonalize it in a way of saying that racism can exist. I, I think it starts from the premise that racism can exist within a system embedded as a, you know, into a system rather than being perpetrated consciously by people. In other words, it doesn't always have to be a conscious choice. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, yeah, I think so. I mean, that was part of one of the areas when I was studying it, I was a little hesitant to, I appreciate that it's serving as a reminder that systems as a whole can perpetuate certain things that individuals collectively have probably moved on from because it was put into the DNA, so in to speak, of that system at a time where it reflected the mass will of yeah. the population. But at the same time, I, I I mean, this is such, that's why it's an academic field of study. It's so nuanced. There's part of me that still goes that, that you, I, I don't like it over correcting to the point where the individual no longer has any sort of, you know, purchase in the issue where, where there's no sort of accountability at the individual level. But I, I do appreciate that it's pushing going like, well, yeah, but even if you work at that, there, there's still a certain inertia that continues from the time when people did set up that system and it was reflecting the people of then. Mm. Yes. And and I agree with you. I, I don't want to overcorrect too much, but I do want to give I do want to give a practical example of what this kind of looks like. Um, it is going to be slightly anecdotal, but not from me. It's actually going to be from a Reddit user that uh, explained his... Ex- How did I know Reddit would come in? Oh, always, dude. Always. I saw this weeks ago and really thrilled that I, I remembered it today. Uh, but it's from a user uh, named Beetlejuice Me. and That's why you were reading it. It was correct. I'm not going to say that three times, though. So the... He, it was a comment in response to um, a response to a conversation on private parties and high school proms that that uh, happen in a way to exclude minorities. And someone said, someone commented saying that I never set foot in white prom and only attended fully integrated black dances. And the idea basically being that prom for the white kids is scheduled at a different time or in a way that that the black kids can't be a part of or that that people of color can't be a part of and he goes in detail then for what this actually looks like and he said who's going into detail about beetlejuice me the user beetlejuice me oh. there we go there's the third time so here's he says <laughs> you knew what i was doing i did uh i've lived all over the country including the deep south so i can safely say it takes on a lot of different flavors at my high school the way it worked was the school itself was a very old and historic downtown institution and lots of famous people graduated from it, and a bunch of rich kids go there. I was attending the school in the 2000s, 
And the freshman class was about 30% black and 20% Latino, relatively good school. And the people of color really wanted to attend because their options were two all black high schools or the one Latino high school, which both had a, none of those schools had a college admission rates over 25% or graduation rates over 75%. And, but this school was filled of mostly like second, third, fourth, or even 10th generation rich white students. And this is what they had. They had their own private rich kid parking lots near campus, which was always full of Lamborghinis, BMWs, and absurdly expensive pickup trucks and SUVs. The school had actually a very big wait list for these out-of-district parking spots and was operating significantly over capacity. We even had portable temporary classrooms set up on the practice field. But the alumni donations from these rich multi-generation families made up a large portion of the operating budget of the school. So the money was the main reason the school was so good. And the idea being that if with that money, the, I'm trying to find the next, here we go. Rich kids are, are going to, to first through eighth grade at their suburban schools in a different district. Those suburbanites get funneled straight into an all white quote honors system of classes the first day of their freshman year at this high school. The prerequisites for these honors classes are conveniently only offered at the suburban schools meaning that people of color who live within walking distance of this school can never get into those honors classes that would put them on an advanced course or an advanced track. And then the, whiter, the white kids have nicer classrooms with lots of direct sunlight, digital whiteboards, 20 students. Black kids are packed at 33 at a time into a crappy basement classrooms with chalkboards. Their teachers are alcoholic sports coaches. And their counseling is about, a, is about picking a working class career after graduation something that doesn't involve college. The newspaper and yearbook were white. The debate team was white. Basketball, track, football had black kids. Baseball had black kids. But even then, most of the pitchers and QBs were white. And volleyball, field hockey, swim team, all white. This is the kind of thing that you start to see money, money talks. And when, even in systems where you think money doesn't talk, it still talks. And it's still the donors that run everything. And when you have families who don't want their kids going to school with these, with these lower income students that live close to campus, and they'll use economic divide as the mask for racism often. Well, that's most school districts. Yes, exactly. I mean, I mean, everyone moves into suburbia and the way our education system is built on your living off of property taxes. I mean, that's all it takes is you have white flight. They all move into a certain area. You put like a thousand plus homes in a certain area. Next thing you know, look, there's that much population. We build a school and they're living off of those property taxes. And now you have a mostly all white school district with tons of cash. Yep. And everybody else got left behind. I mean, that I, I see that all the time. He he actually breaks down the number here of of students in a thousand student class, right? Thousand students in his freshman class. Five hundred were white, five hundred POC, people of color. Says of the five hundred white students, 50 would drop out or transfer before graduation, but a new 50 would transfer into the school. So the graduating class would be about 500 people. Over 95% of white graduates went on to attend a four-year college, many of them Ivy Leagues. Of the 500 people of color students, only 250, or about 250 would drop out or be forced to or be forced to by the academic office to change schools. And another 100 would drop out or transfer. So only 150 
would actually graduate. And about half of them would go to college and less of, than half of that group would graduate college. And the idea being that this is a system that is being funded by people, but ultimately, if you're just going through it as a person, you may not see the ins and outs of what's causing that system to work the way it does if you're focused on school and class and just trying to do whatever it is that you're doing as a high school student, right? And this is the idea of, yes, there are people that are doing things in a very specific manner that cause very specific outcomes for people of color. And if this story is made up, like this is a user on Reddit, if the story is made up, sure. But that doesn't, none of that sounds far-fetched from even, like none of that sounds at all impossible. If it's made up, it's at least, it's made up within the realm of plausibility because of so many of the factors it would be feeding off of. Yeah, because the the graduation rates are statistically like that. It, it's pretty consistent with a lot of things that tend to be true about these issues. And the, that's what I mean by a practical example of a system working against is if you're just a student going to school, you're trying to do the best you can, and this school is act, actively working, not necessarily to disadvantage you, but to advantage others where the money is because they've got to keep those families happy. Yeah. It may not be racist by necessarily intent by the school. Maybe it is. I can't speak for the school itself. But what I can say is it ends up being racist just by what you end up doing and who you end up segregating as a result. Yeah, you might almost could call it secondary racism, even though that's a horrible sounding term. Like indirect racism? Would that be more of a what you're going for? Or, or do you are you doing secondary because high school? In secondary yeah, school, well, I was tr- I was trying secondary because of high school. But nice, well done. Yes, but then I had to explain it, so it wasn't too well done. But anyway, <laughs> like their graduation rates. Yeah. So, dun dun dun. But I mean, yeah, that, I guess that's where critical race theory would come in and argue. We see these systems have been set up that are perpetuating racism, right? Whether the people participating in the system are doing it intentionally or not, the argument would be that the system itself is creating racist outcomes. Yes. Right. And that's really where critical race theory comes into play. They're saying people need to be aware and actively mitigating these kinds of systematic trends. Well, and it's it's interesting because critical race theory really does like this is why it's limited to mainly academics, scholars and and professors in colleges is in in is because it's mainly dealing with the legal side of things. To be honest, critical race theory is really meant to address problems within the law and government side, not necessarily the person-to-person daily experience or lived reality. It's not so much focused on the individual as it is focused on the systems that affect individuals. And so, yeah, it's a system of uh, academic elites talking about systems of racial elites. Yes, it's a, and it's meant as a way of understanding and interacting with these ideas, not necessarily as as some movement in and of itself. And I think that's my problem is I feel like a lot of the confusion and outrage about critical race theory actually comes from more of a manufactured moral panic or moral outrage than from the actual merits of critical race theory on its own. I don't know. What do you think? Well, I mean, I think we live in a hyper-partisan age where everything now becomes not a movement, but some sort of political pawn. So in other words, Black Lives Matter was originally right a cause that then did have a political movement attached to it. So the 
the trend in society now is you mention any sort of phrase or any sort of movement, and it's immediately some sort of yeah. political entity, right? So I bet most people on the street, if you heard critical race theory, you would go, oh, well, what do they vote for? And who do they you know, support? And who's giving them money? You know, the conspiracy theorists will be like, George Soros gives them money, right? Bill Gates, um, you know, whatever. And, th- and the problem with that is, is it's not necessarily a political movement. You can have people in political movements that probably ascribe to many of the things that it discusses. But critical race theory in and of itself, I don't think has the same... It doesn't have the same real world correlation as Black Lives Matter, which is a political movement at the same time as it is a social movement. Right? That, and that and that came about pretty quickly hand in hand. But like you said, critical race theory is more academic. It it, it existed pre the hyper partisan age. It existed real. I mean, although some people would argue that in the 1970s the Christian coalition's coming about, so you're getting the hyper political age anyway. But it was a primarily and it still is an academic function. That obviously academia would hope that if they do it right, it's influencing everybody else, including in politics. But I, I think, like you said, that's where that's where the rub comes, because everyone just automatically wants to assume where's their political agenda and what are they trying to do? And especially in something that by nature says that systems are not working correctly. And and just even the language they use, I can see how it'd be easily open to both scaremongering and other problems coming into play, because they go, well, constitutions and laws by themselves are not neutral. And the moment you start using language like that, it is very easy to infer a political agenda from it. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. And that's the, in order to interact with these conversations fairly, we have to step back from the hyperpartisan stuff. I, if you are not in a, if you're not in a position to do that, then quite frankly, this sounds, this is going to sound harsh, but quite frankly, you're not in a position to talk about it. Yet, because you've still got your, what a friend of mine would, would label as a primary identifier, but the, you've still got your, your source of identity or your, your source of the passionate emotion, essentially, in this case, tied up in a conversation about a topic that really does actually impact and affect lives. And the, and in a way that prevents you from interacting with the topic fairly and evaluating it based on merit and based on, you know, real world impact and effectiveness versus how it makes you feel and what those within your group that you belong to have said about it. And I can say this about both ways, not, you know, not one or the other. Buying into it. Yes. Just buying into it doesn't work. I, I guess a good way to put it with this, if you're about to interact with something, if your first question is, what do the people that I like think about it, then you are not ready to address the issue. That, that's the fundamental problem in politics now. It's not, uh, we have no problem, I think, Ryan or I, I would hope not, with you having political opinions, or as we've talked about before, we, we think those that really believe something, they're involved in something that want to better the world, I mean, they will become involved politically. There's no yep. ifs, ands, or buts about that. You know, Christianity isn't just supposed to be a mental ascent to something. It should get you out and involved. We, we've discussed this before. But that being said, there's if politics is the outflow of something you believe versus the, you know, this, the lotus of why you're doing what you're doing, I think that there's the difference. In other words, is politics a means to an end or is it the end in itself? Yeah. 
Uh, no, no, I agree with you. And that's why, that's actually why I opened up by saying never trust Prager you, because they're one of the sources that I went to because I tend to not agree with Prager you very often, but that's exactly why I go to them. Because I want to understand, I want to know what they're saying, I want to know what they're thinking. And it's really interesting to me because a lot of this, basically PragerU, objectively speaking, does a lot of moral panic, outrage style, trying to create and, 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 and instill a strong emotional response. And there's a reason for this, which is... Social emotion sells. Emotion sells because emotions cause you to share it. The idea being that you don't want to just create something that people like because if people like it, they just move on. Part of the reason that a lot of podcasts don't hear a lot of feedback, and this is this is true in both Henry and my case for absurdity, is a lot of people like this show. Yeah, we're going to assume if you're still listening, it's because you probably resonate with things. Which means you like like what you're about to say. You have no real incentive to talk about it because it's just like, huh, that's just part of my life, and I enjoy it, and I'm yeah. going to keep listening to it. And who matters if anybody knows if I listen to it or not? But the stories where someone reaches out to me and tells me you talking about this topic was completely transformational for me, or you talking about this topic meant so much to me because it's my experience, and I feel seen, I feel heard, I feel valued, I feel affirmed. Those those kinds of interactions have happened. And even Henry, I would actually say that Henry gets more people telling him about their experience listening to the show than I do. And I'm a little jealous of it, to be honest. Tell me, if you know me in person, tell me more. I want to know. But it's hard to get feedback because people like it and they they may even love yeah, it. They get very little online feedback. Correct. And, the, and that's okay. I want people to like it. But it also means that just liking something isn't usually enough to fully grow it. It takes you to love it to recommend it to your friends. And this is the this is the reality of social media and YouTube. Is well in media. That's why normally a co-host should be like degenerate and and just disagreeing with everything because people like conflict and then I can disagree with them. So the moral of the story is starting next week, I'm gonna disagree with everything Ryan says, and then maybe you'll share it. That already happens. I don't know what you're talking about. I'm just kidding. The No, but it's true. And if you disagree well, people love it. If you disagree not well, people will share it, but they won't love it. They'll hate it. But that'll still get you views. That'll still get you attention. And that's what PragerU does a lot of. And what's funny is they most of the most of the criticism I see, you know, lay or or against critical race theory or against specifically from PragerU, but against these kinds of ideas or things that try to address modern day racism and forms of racism is they always start with this. If it has its way, the America that you know and the way of life that you have will be changed forever. And literally everyone who agrees with critical race or like who, who subscribes to it or who wants to talk about racism in that way is like, yes. Yeah, we will. That's the point. That's literally the point. Correct. They say it is a bad thing. And, and, and I think this is correct because we saw this with Richard Spencer a couple of years ago in a big white supremacist movement of like the whole protect your way of life thing is typically ends up just being code for protect white people. A lot of the time is we need to preserve although, white although culture. It's, it's natural human condition too not to like change. Oh, yeah, yeah, no, no, absolutely. Oh, of course unless you're unless you're in a really 
cruddy environment, obviously. People don't like change. Even change that they want, they still don't like. Very often. Most of the time, we just don't like change. It's hard. And I get that. I don't like change. The only change I like is seeing what new cool colored shirt Henry wears a- each week on the show. That's that's literally it. It's the only change. I really like this green polo that you got on. That's all. Just, this is just me, my way of sneaking in that compliment. The Well, thank you. If it matters for anything, my wife picked it. Oh, yeah. No, that does matter. Like, literally, she bought it and brought it home. Henry is quite literally a better man. My, my wife brings me clothes. Yeah, she is a better man. <laughs> She's he, like, here, wear this. <laughs> she makes you a better man both in appearance and in substance. It's it's great. Uh, it just begs the question, how did she ever pay attention to me? To <laughs> I guess women love projects. Anyway. No, nah, she heard about you on the podcast and just had to had to go seek you out, you know? I don't think we were actually recording on podcasts podcast when i met her no that's not the that that's the case that's not the truth but the or that is the truth but she did hear you talk and that's what matters um she did she she was like poor boy she got to know your mind before she got to know you and that's what and she fell in love with your mind first and your heart that's that's what it is and she was like i can work on the looks by the way i'm actually fairly sure that what i just said (laughs) is a very accurate assessment and i've met her a total of one time which was at the wedding. I still have, it's literally sitting across my laptop and I get it if it wasn't going to make a bunch of noise, but I still have the program. It's fading, but I have the program from your wedding. It is in the room with me. So uh, it's just- COVID style, you were one of the limited 25 people we could have. That's right, I was. I'm very honored and touched by that. You and Natabelle, it was nice to have both of you. It was good to be there, man. We we loved it. You were almost 10% of our attendance. Oh, yay. Um, (laughs) It's okay, that's about how much of your heart I have still. So I'll take it. Oh, the anyway, back to (laughs) I love it. No, but that's that like there's a lot of the idea that I was trying to communicate is that a lot of racism now happens in code because a lot of it is illegal. And that's why just saying it's illegal or thinking it's illegal isn't enough for you to be able to make the determination that racism doesn't exist anymore. It, it just isn't because racism doesn't need to announce itself to be racism in the same way that if like if I meet you and we're talking or we're dating and then I suddenly stop responding to you and never see you, never talk to you, leave you on red, you know, I screen you, which essentially means that I leave your your message on my notification screen. I never actually like open up the message. That's that term. If I d- I'm glad you know these terms. I didn't. Yeah. So ghosting and screened are are kind of synonymous in that way. Well, I knew ghosting. Yeah. Screening. Okay. I've so if, if totally woke. <laughs> nice. If that happens, you don't need me to tell you. Which, granted, I shouldn't do that. No guy should do that, or no girl should do that. I should be upfront with you and just tell you, hey, I don't think it's going to work out, or hey, I'm not interested. But you don't need me to tell you that I'm not interested for you to figure out that I'm not interested. For some, and maybe it's because we all like to be the hero in our own stories that we don't like, we don't, we are very uncomfortable admitting that something we do could be racist, even if we never meant it to be in the first place. And even if we have nothing but love in our actual heart for the person that we're speaking to or interacting with. Because racism doesn't care about your intentions, typically. Yeah. And there's a lot of, a lot of it that is learned. And you don't know that's what you're learning when you're learning it, obviously. They're subtle things. Yeah. Just just the expectation of think about what you what you picture when you think of a, a person that's of a different ethnicity or racial background. That'll tell you right there 
if that's the stereotypical person you think of, then there's, you know, depending on what features and what what you believe about them and what you assume about someone, if you see them on the side of the road or if you see them walking somewhere or whatever, then that will tell you a lot about what, what's been ingrained and what you may have grown up believing or what you what you may need to address currently. But yes, you can learn it. You can be completely unaware that you have. And this is why this is why it's so important for us to kind of take a step back from the hyperpartisanship from the and from the from that primary mode of I, I identify this way is because we need to be able to say, I want to care more about the experience as a human being that I give you. And by that, I mean, I care more about our interactions being of respect, mutual respect and kindness and love. And I value you feeling comfortable, secure, safe, and important in my presence that I need you to communicate with me. If I am going to, if I say something that either offends you or that, that doesn't, you know, that, that, that causes you, you know, unnecessary harm. And sometimes it may be an unreasonable request that you're asking me to do, or maybe something that, that, you know, we, we work through and this is relationship, this is friendships, but there are times where, you know, you have to decide if, if me doing something that may trigger someone's insecurity, if that's more of a responsibility on me to not do the thing that triggers them, or if the insecurity is significant enough that it's actually, they need to work on the insecurity more so than I need to stop doing the thing I'm doing, right? So if someone, let me give a wild example, not, not real at all, but just like someone was in a car accident once and now they have PTSD from it. And then they tell me, I don't like when, you know, you drive a car, right? It's not like, that's an unreasonable accommodation on my part to stop driving a car because of how you feel about cars. I'm not gonna suddenly bike everywhere. I would rather say, hey, I will, I, I want to make reasonable accommodations where I can, but let's, let's work on figuring out why or figuring out ways and coping mechanisms and whatever to deal with the PTSD that you have from this major car accident that you experienced years ago. And let's work on growing from that, right? And let's work together as a team to do that because I value you and I want you to know that I support you and that I'm not trying to just dismiss your experience as unimportant and as something that I just doesn't matter to me and, and I don't care about. So that's what I kind of mean by, you know, reasonable accommodation versus unreasonable and, and really trying to provide a high quality experience just as a human being, human to human, a loving and caring relationship between two people or however many people. So yeah. I hope that makes sense. But Henry, any, any thoughts here or, or, or what would you, I guess, actually, let me, let me change it. How do we see this within Christianity, within whether it's our own denomination or outside of it, you know, with when it comes to as Christians, how we interact with this, where have you formed an opinion on that yet? Or is this kind of the first time we've considered it as we translate it into this language? Like how, how Christians should relate to critical race theory? Yeah, just I mean, and just the with... yeah, just kind of everything we've been talking about. Well, I mean, obviously, I mean, if we want to go take the literal approach. Jesus was very clear, and this is something that's bugged me for a long time with Western Christianity in my lifetime. The Lord said in all four Gospels, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Uh, ignorance is not becoming of the Christian. 
I believe you are insult. Uh, this is just me. Feel free to write hate mail and be upset about it. I think you insult God when you stay ignorant. I, I really do. He gave you a brain for a reason, and we don't use a very high percentage of it, and we don't even use the percentage we could be using. So I, I try to endeavor to, even though I know you say, well, I can't understand everything and be in great depth and be an academic. Well, I'm not saying you need to have a PhD in everything, but become aware. And I'm saying that as one who just admitted at the beginning of this podcast that I wasn't 100% really certain what critical race theory was and hadn't bothered to interact with it. Mm. So, I mean, the first thing is, you know, as Christians, we need to educate ourselves. I mean, and to that end, I know you think, well, that's easy for you to say on a podcast, but I, I do mean this even independently of podcasts. You know, I, I, I kind of partly mentioned it to, to Ryan, but to prove the point, I was preparing to talk about this podcast, but when we turn the camera off and we're done, I'm still not done with this topic. I try not to do that with all the topics that we discuss, but like I just actually picked up a book if you want to join me with this. And I say this is one who has not read the whole book yet. So I don't know what the like book is yet. Book. He flashed it on camera before I, we hit record. So yeah. I'm, but I'm just well, going to yeah. tell you, I'll drop a link to it in the show notes so you can, you can purchase yeah, it directly. Yeah. It came highly recommended to me and it's called, I'll hold it up here. I have it sitting right here. It's called Stamped from the Beginning. Mm. The Definitive History of Racist Ideas in America by e, um, Ibram uh, Kendi. Backwards. That's why I couldn't read it. Yeah, yeah the, the camera uh, mirrored it. Yeah, yeah, it threw me off. I was like, Ibram Kendi. Don't worry, it wasn't mirrored on my end, only on yours. It, yes, thank you, thank you. But anyway, this book came highly recommended to me, and for what it matters, I tried to ask somebody who has to deal with racism on a daily basis, so basically someone who did not have my skin color, not that that's an immediate like endorsement of the book, but I tried to say, hey, as a white guy that admittedly doesn't understand things and wants to at least have some better understanding, are there any books you would recommend that you know would probably work? And at least for me, and of course, this is an interaction where they know me, so this might not work for everybody, but they, they said, tried this book. So I, it's a thick book. Admittedly, it's 500 and some pages. My so ADHD is triggered like right now. I, I know it's. Uh, I'm not going to finish it in a day or a week by any means. But this is one of those things where it now goes in my book rotation. I'm going to make a conscious effort to read through it. And my point being, educate yourself. That doesn't mean I'm going to. And I'm saying this now as someone who, you know, asked me again in a month when I finish it. But I don't even know fully what's in this book. I don't know if I'm going to agree with it or not. But that's that's not even the point. I think the point is is interacting with it, making an attempt to mm -hmm. to to inform yourself. So I, I think as Christians, the first thing is when it comes to the literal academic study of, of critical race theory, I'm not saying you have to agree with it, but at least look into it, you know, figure out where, you know, you can or not. And I say that as someone who didn't really look into critical race theory until this week, and I can't say I agree a hundred percent with it, but there's a lot of things that I don't see as a Christian why I couldn't agree with it. But I didn't know that until I started looking into it. So that would be my first thing. As Christians, we just need to we need to love the Lord with our mind. We need to educate ourselves. It means I have to be a little less lazy and watch one less thing on Netflix and spend a little time reading. I mean, it's a, it is a sacrifice we make. And maybe this is just me personally, but I say my sacrifice the sacrifice of a little inconvenience to educate myself is far less than the sacrifice of someone who's suffering racism every day. Yep. So, you know, to me, I just say that as a privileged white guy, I I want to try and study to invest yeah. some time in it. Well, and so there's that, 
there's there's uh, there's something that might be born out of this, and uh, I'm going to give listeners the opportunity to make this happen. So if it happens, it's because listeners reached out to us and told us we want this to happen, uh, and then both of us agreed to it as well. But I I, I hear the rumblings of an absurd book club. Uh, that's what I'm I'm hearing I knew out of that's this. Where you were going? Uh, if, like basically, we all ag- we all agree by vote we're going to read something, and yep. then maybe at the tail end when you and I have finished it, we do a podcast on it. Yeah, we do a special one just for the book club. We talk about it, do a whole live thing. Yeah. I could see it happening if you want it to happen. Um, let us know. Contact us in the show notes. I'm actually genuinely curious if if someone will 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 do it. I I it, that is curious. I'd be game. I'd be really interested in doing that. I need the accountability for my ADHD to read through books anyway, so I'd I'd be fine with it. The yeah, don't th- don't expect us if we do that to do like mm. a book a week. It's probably going to. I'm be actually like going to learn. I want to learn like that, speed but... reading. I really want to learn speed reading. I think uh, I can and... I can read decently fast, but I have to have absolutely no distractions. It has to be quiet, mm. and I need several hours just to really sit there. It depends on how complex the the topic is for sure. Speed reading gets affected by how much of the details you really need to keep in mind as you read. The but I, I am interested. Tim Ferriss has really popularized it, but there's a lot of guys on YouTube that that have really done it. There's one dude, Mike Shakes, or Mike Shake, who does like new skills all the time. And he learned one of the videos, he like learns how to yo-yo in seven days or learns how to do this in six hours or learns how to do whatever. His videos are amazing by the way. But one of them is, I haven't watched it yet, but he's how I read five, or I learned to read 500 words per minute in like seven days or something like that. And it's just amazing how he chronicles his journey. He learned how to learn how to speak Spanish in seven days. That was one of his, he spent hours every day doing the Rosetta Stone program to, to pull it off. And then at the end of the video, he has a conversation in Spanish with a friend of his. And it's like, what? I tried the Rosetta Stone program years ago. It didn't work for me, and Duolingo does, but I think we've had discussions. Oh, yeah. I think it depends on your mind and how it works. But if someone wants to do a book club on it, I'm, I'm game. And, and, and I actually do want to read that book. I've seen it. I just haven't picked it up, so I may pick up a copy for myself. I'm Yeah, it's an older book. It's not one that before you're like, ah, oh, it just came out in the tranche of books in today's political climate. I, I need to look right here. This, it's an older book. It won the National Book Club Award. Speaking of book clubs, when was this thing published? Because it, it's an older book. I had seen it a couple. It was published in 2017. Wow. So so it's, you know, almost, what, five years old now? So it, it's been out for a while, but I hadn't. Yeah, winner of the 26th. Well, I guess it must have. This must be a second edition because it won the 2016 National Book Award for nonfiction. So I don't know how we could. Win that, and also for what it mean, whatever it means, the NAACP uh, called it an outstanding literary work. So, hmm. you know, organizations—I know that's more political—but organizations that are involved with African American issues at least told me that I'm not fully wasting my time reading <laughs> it. So I'm gonna I'm gonna get into it. But I love in it. any case, yeah, coming back to it. So the first thing is, is Christians use your brain, educate, be be aware, whether you agree or not, just study. I think the second thing when it comes to anything related to critical race theory is we need to understand at its core, critical race theory says that systems can be racist. And uh, I hope this isn't a news flash to anybody, but churches as a whole are a system. Yep. All right. Denominations, all that. These are structures. These are institutions. In fact, that's what kills half of the Western church is we go from movements to institutions and institutions have to protect themselves and keep running on their own inertia and whatever. But my point is, if the church is a system, I mean, this I, I, I think Dr. Martin Luther King said this 
years ago, and it's still obviously true. And that is the most segregated hour in America is 11 a.m. on a Sunday. Right. Insert Saturday or whatever other day. Uh, I and I can say this is one who's grown up in the South and around churches. Churches are still highly segregated, if not in belief system uh, or on paper in practice. Yes. Yep. And it's not even and and don't even get me started. I'm speaking as one who's part of a denomination that is segregated institutionally in Mm -hmm. many areas. And even in the areas where it's not segregated institutionally, I have watched the reality of white flight in churches. And what I mean by that is you might be in a community where there is only the one church of your denomination, and all of a sudden there's a mix, and let's just say there's a few more black people start moving in and becoming members than white, next thing you know, all the white people drive to the other church an hour away. Uh, I have seen this happen, or I've seen it even less overtly racist ways, but I think this is where critical race theory comes in, where they say, well, the individuals might not be, but the systems still work that way. I have sat in on meetings where churches have debated whether they need to move locations and build new churches. And these discussions will center around, well, look at the neighborhood we're in now, or look what's happened in this area now. And they'll, and they'll phrase it about crime or, or something else, but I will really see that it's a predominantly white church in a now predominantly black neighborhood. And so they'll argue it crime or something Income else, inequality really is, is typically is, the biggest mask I, I'm finding. Is it more and more the mask that hides yeah. racism? Yeah. And so, I, you know, all of this is to say, I think the next thing a Christian should do when it comes to critical race theory is we have to admit that the church is not immune from having race issues. And I don't just mean the few bad apples. I mean, institutionally, our churches are still dealing with it. Mm. And, and, Unfortunately, as a Christian, I I mean, all religions do this, but just speaking as a Christian, I've also noticed that when we don't deal with something effectively, it starts manifesting itself in other things. So, for example, churches have tried to—it's not very popular to say we're still racist or we haven't apologized for slavery or, or, you know, I think like the Southern Baptist Convention that came out and apologized for being pro-slavery and all that. Well, that's easy to make statements about 160 years ago prior to the Civil War. But it's another thing to realize you're not empowering black leadership or that you're using some of the same arguments now, but instead of doing it about race, you're doing it against women. Yeah. So, you know, again, because the institution's just used to acting this way. So I I think these are things that, you know, we need to, as as Christians, we need to admit that it exists. So the first thing is educate yourself just in general. Second of all, when it comes to the church, you could also say educate yourself to how your your religion and your church has dealt with race. And then at the same time, to do that, you have to admit there could potentially be and probably will be a problem. Yep. Not wasn't anymore. I don't know of any faith community that doesn't still have a problem with this because faith communities are made up of humans and humans still have a problem with this. So just admit there's a problem. Right. And then the third and final thing, I guess I'd say, and I want to flip it over to you, Ryan, and you tell me how you think we should do that is like we said earlier. Once you become educated and once you admit there's a problem, or at least your eyes are open to the possibility there is, that's going to mean there's going to come a point in some way, shape, or form, in some little way or some big way, you're going to have to get involved in changing it. Period. I'm not saying join a political party or go immediately spend all your time doing whatever, but in some even small form, even if it's what catching your own self and what you say, do, or allow, you know, education has to change you. I think that's probably why academia mm-hmm. likes critical race theory and it's in its point. The more they talk about it, the more they put it in front of their students, the more they put it in front of society that hopefully it changes the critical mass of people. Yeah. 
right? And that these these systems then begin to change. Of course, their ultimate goal is to change legally, but changing legally changes institutionally. And so the same thing, there might be some policies, some other things that are going to have to change in your church, denominationally, locally, in your local leadership, and, and you need to play a part in that. And sometimes it's the squeaky wheel gets the oil. Sometimes we have to follow, again, a Bible story that, that God gave, where Jesus talked about the unjust judge and the continual pestering widow, right? Where this man wasn't even interested in, you know, righteousness or injustice, but he finally acted and did the right thing, even if it was for the wrong reason, because he just wanted to shut this woman up. And, you know, this is a matter of someone who knew she'd been wrong, something was not right, and she just kept at it, right? Mm -hmm. I don't think, I don't think she was cruel about it. She wasn't like giving him death threats and trying to burn his hut down or whatever, at least that's not how the parable gives us those details, but I assume God means she just was continually agitating for it, pushing it, bringing it up, and it led to change. Maybe not for the best motive, but it was a start. And so I think we're going to have to get involved in some way, shape, or form mm -hmm. in whatever we discover on that journey of inform, yeah, informing ourselves. So, and I think the there, so I agree with everything that you've said, and I think by getting involved to to change it, and even admitting that it's a problem, is going to take a whole lot of courage. The reality is I have a friend of mine who pastors and he started dealing with, with significant racism in his church uh, just over the last several months. And he's had an exodus of leaders over the fact that he wouldn't, he wouldn't just sit quietly and let it go. If this is who I think it is, his wife's been threatened too. And yes. If, if it is who you're, yeah, we may we still be thinking of different people. It's not like this is an uncommon Which occurrence. Yeah. The, but the, the reality is that's as a pastor, that's scary to think about, especially if you're in a congregational church rather than a institutional church. Idea being that you're paid directly where your, from where tithe. Your salary is yes. determined on your leaders. Yeah. So the and determined by by your tithe from your your church members. Like that's a significant that's a significant risk because and this is the other side of this that I would say is you do need to. I agree that your mind should not be neglected. That you need to educate yourself, but there's also the reality that we need to accept that says that this won't be won by logical arguments. I, yeah. I don't know what to like, I could sit here and tell you and, and go on about like the, the Netflix documentary 13 or 13th, which talks about the 13th amendment being allowed where, which is supposed to have like abolished slavery actually allows for it within one context, which is when someone is in prison, it allows for, slavery in the the event of you can go look at this it, it's in the constant like it's in the amendment itself it is a very real provision for the longest time your parents got their license plates folks yep and the the problem with that is that the current justice system and it's been shown by statistics over and over again throughout the years overly targets people of color which means if yeah, don't don't start talking about drug sentencing. Yep, that's, that's a whole I mean, other mess. Crack, crack versus genuine cocaine, and weed, and the, the whole nine yards. But then, when you remember that now, you know that slavery exists. In if you know that the history of police, police started to actually catch slaves. That's why police were formed in the South, way back when. You know that the. Slavery was abolished except in the case of prisons, and now you have police disproportionately arresting prisoners, judges disproportionately sentencing people of color. And it's doesn't it does not take a genius here to 
to connect those dots. And that slavery, in a very real sense, still exists in the United States today. It just exists in a way that isn't visible anymore to the person who's just... Yeah, we, we ship our economic slavery to China, India, yep. Pakistan. We, Thailand, wherever you want to... Yeah. Right, and then race overly into our prison systems. And that's and the... racism, but you don't have to feel bad about it. You don't see it. Correct, but I could do that all day long. And I guarantee you, there's someone that listens and goes, no, I disagree. Even though, like, I can, all of those are factual things that I could pull up stats for and everything. This isn't one biological arguments because, and this is a rule of marketing. This is why marketing works. People don't make decisions. People like to think that we make decisions with our logical brain, but we don't. We make decisions based on what makes us feel the best, feel the most secure, feel the most comfortable. And whatever we think supports a narrative we already choose Correct. To in. That, that's a real psychological thing of the mind will go to almost any length to protect a currently held position and justify it versus to the point that we will try and rewrite reality in order to keep that very often in order to keep that perspective and instead of just accepting the new information as what it is. And... You actually, for the irony being that we're two Christians saying that, and there's a lot of atheists that go out there saying that Christians are, you know, anyone who believes in any sort of deity is doing that, you know, as they're presented with all this evidence about the age of the earth or anything like that, that you're just, uh, you're, you're doing the same thing. And so I, I don't want to be like a hypocrite and say that I'm not aware of, you know, I'm completely unaware of that being leveled against people in our positions too. But I'm, but the idea here being that, the only way this battle gets won is through real intentional relationships where you can have one-on-one -on -one conversations and sort through people's fears and sort through people's concerns. The idea, the, the problem is that privilege is such that people are comfortable. People like how things are. And you've even... And it's a privilege. That's why it's called that. Even the conversation about canceling student loans, the number one thing that I hear from people is... Or the number one thing I hear is, well, what if I just finish paying off mine? Do I get a raise? Do I get a bonus? And it's like, no, but just because you don't doesn't mean others shouldn't. Like, I don't, it, it's this thing of there's fears, there's feelings of unfairness, there's feelings of, of, of this inequality that, that need to be dealt with and that need to be addressed in a very real relationship that you as a stranger on a Facebook comment or an anonymous person on a church survey aren't going to be able to solve Unless you deal with the conversation and deal with those fears, people like the way that they're living in many cases, and they and if they don't like the way they're living, they if they already are dissatisfied with the way things are, they don't want it to change further. If in that narrative of change includes them being the one that has to sacrifice, think about the people that you were calling, you know, that that we would call privileged, now being but also having been unemployed for the last year because of the pandemic. And now we're saying that, you know, critical race theory says that they participate in a system which unfairly disadvantages people of color. And we're saying that you, we need to change these attitudes or these ways that we do things. And they're saying, I'm just trying to get by, man. Like, do we really have to do this? Like, I have to be the villain when I'm already feeling like the victim in all of these other ways. We need to deal with those issues in order to open someone up to the reality or to the possibility that their preconceived way of life might not actually be the correct way to do things. I just, I, I don't know another way to deal with it. I don't think there is, personally. 
And I think Christianity and churches can be one of the most powerful places to do that if we actually engage in relationships outside of the hour and a half on Saturday or Sunday morning that we worship together. And in relationships with people who don't worship with us. Yes, absolutely. Um, and, and that's one of the things that, that I wish and, and hope more for. And that's one, you know, I hope that this encourages people to go read, to go study, to go educate themselves, but also to engage in conversations. I, despite the fact that I have to take a million breaks in order to do so, I try very hard to engage in content that I don't agree, that I know I don't agree with going into it or from sources that I know I don't agree with, but I try to take each video or each article, um, on, on its own merits very much because I don't want to just be in an echo chamber and I want to understand those feelings and those ideas as people are experiencing them because I don't want them to be dismissed unless dismissing them is after is the last like it's kind of like the we've done everything we possibly can and there's nothing else to be done like i yeah we've we've discussed this yeah exactly in the last couple of weeks yeah. so that that's that's where i that's where i'm at on that and as a christian i do think that we have the best place to do that because we keep in mind that every single person we talk to is valuable worthy of time and attention and love and because god created them god created them with value and god died for them this you know jesus died for them the same way that jesus died for you and me and that kind of equality, that kind of, I, I call it one of, you know, salvation, creation, I would say within our denomination, but I, I think the Sabbath is also another one. Uh, those are all the great equalizers. And the, the idea being that when we keep these things in mind, it, it equalizes, it, it makes it so that we aren't better than anyone else because it puts us all in the same playing field. The Sabbath biblically, whether you think it's Saturday Sabbath right now or not, biblically, the Sabbath was an equalizer because you couldn't make your servants work for you. They had to rest. You had to give them rest the same way that you got rest. The alien, the naturalized citizen, whatever you want to term. Yeah, it's, and, that, and that's a whole topic. That might be another topic we can cover at some point, how we view that. I, I really do view the, the Sabbath as a countercultural great equalizer that it would have a lot to speak into issues, even like critical race theory. But too many people are, again, and this goes back to your point, too many people are willing to try and make logical arguments about what day is it? And what do you do on that day? And they, then they miss the the narrative about what it's trying to mean. Yep. And, and I think this goes to break your point. This is why the whole Bible isn't an encyclopedia. Yep. Right. So many people want it. Christians want it to be like a devotional book, like quick, just give me the topic on joy today. There's section J paragraph two, section one, four, right. You know, thou shalt do this and be happy today. Yay. You know, it, it doesn't work that way. People are like, man, it's like all this story and stuff. Yeah. yeah. That's kind of the point. You have to interact with it. You have to see the lessons and the principles that it brings out. Anyway. Man, don't even get me started yeah. on the number of parents that tell their kids they can't watch Harry Potter or some other thing because of the content. And then they read their kid, their six-year-old Noah's Ark. Like, don't, don't, don't even get me started on how we interact with the Bible currently. That, that also is a topic in and of itself. But it was evil people that were drowned. Yeah, man. exactly. Um, as if that in itself makes the story okay. They didn't say hocus pocus, but don't worry. We'll also edit the story of Noah and not get into the incest and everything else that happens at the end when he turns into an alcoholic family. Yeah, we just pretend we just end yeah. at the dove showing up or whatever with uh, with the olive branch. Well, 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 you're right. And maybe we'll get to they get off and there's the rainbow again. And, yeah. And not that it, it 
descends into chaos rather quickly. But anyway. Yeah, no, no, we won't. Another topic yeah. for another time. Is there any final thoughts we should probably make about critical race theory before we, you know, critically end this don't, topic for today? Don't knock it till you try it. That's my final thought. I almost, I almost said something different. I, I ended up going with don't knock it till you try it. But basically the idea being don't ever outright dismiss something just because it sounds weird or because it's coming from a voice that you disagree with the or traditionally disagree with. The value, value and take each thing on its own merits and evaluate it and dive into it and try to dive into it from sources outside of your normal sphere. You may need to start in your own sphere, which is okay. Um, the... But I, I like to think, the questions I always ask myself when I dive into things like this are these. What, what is it, first of all? Where does it come from? What is it? But then I think, what is someone who disagree with it? This is actually where I typically start, is what is someone who disagrees with it? What, what would they say about it? What would someone criticize about it first? So before I talk about its merits, I say, what would someone criticize about it? And that typically leads me down a path of understanding each different, you know, each different facet because I get to start from the criticisms and I'm either proving those right or proving those wrong. And it starts from me being critical of it where I might see a hole. And then from there, I can go and form an opinion from different things. So I'd say, okay, well, what is someone who agrees with it? What would they say to this? Or how would they interact with this? And, and so I'd, I'd look at those kind of videos. I, I probably spent uh, an hour watching, you know, uh, six or seven different videos on critical race theory before we recorded and it was, you know, different people, black people, white people who agree and disagree, who hate it, who can't stand it, who feel like it's, it's just racism redesigned. And then there are others who say that this is a really important way for us to understand the systems that are at work behind the scenes and, and in, even in front of our eyes. So I would just say, don't knock it before you try it, but instead do intentional research. And like Henry said, engage your mind in thoughtful education and, and meaningful education. So with that, yeah, Henry, anything from you? I think you just said what I was going to say. I was going to repeat, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then I just add to what Ryan said, truth has nothing to fear from investigation. Mm. If you are worried about looking at the alternate explanation or answer, or you feel threatened by that, you have to ask yourself, is what you believe worth believing? Yeah. I just throw that out. Absolutely. So with that, thank you everyone for listening. Remember, if you want the Absurd Book Club to start up, reach out to us, let us know. You can either email me and my email's in the show notes or tweet at us, hit us up on Instagram, whatever whatever you need to do. At uh, Real Ryan Becker is mine. And you can find me on either Instagram or Twitter or Facebook, whatever you want to do. And then let us know. I, I mean, I'd be interested. Depending If we get enough people, we'll do it. Uh, we I want a community out of this. I don't want to do it with like us and two other people. So... Um, because I think there's more at, there's more value that comes from it when there's more people involved and there's a sweet spot that we'll aim for here. But if we can get 10 people, I'd do it hundred percent, 10 to 12 people I'm in. So uh, I will, I will hold off starting to read this one week for you to get into this. Okay. Then I'm reading this. So then I'm posting this. <laughs> I we're, we're going to skip the episode or order. Um, and I'm going to, I'm going to throw this in front and put this up uh, oh no 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 you you you, you can that means you're but you that means you're doing it two weeks from now three weeks oh, from so when our record to... date three weeks uh, yeah see that's why well, I'll, I'll bet i'll back up i'll back 
Tell us, and I'll just be ahead on the first book if this is even the first book we do. That's fine. I'm not going to wait. That's fine. Just read it, and we'll go from there. Selfish. I want to read it. I'll hold off. We can. I'll just catch everyone else up to speed there. It sounded good, but now I'm greedy. Yeah. No, that's fine. We'll figure it out. Whenever you see this, if you see this before, if you see this and it's between May 17 and 24, then he gave you, then we're, then you have until the 24th. But if you're hearing this after the 24th, we've already, we're already past the threshold. So just reach out to us and let us know if you want us to do a book club. That's all that matters. Just let us know. With that, everyone, thank you for putting up with my ADHD and my ability to derail Henry at any given moment in an episode. And I hope that this was beneficial to you as does Henry. And with that, we will see you next week.